Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm going to have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. Today we're going to be talking with Heather Gordon. She's an extraordinary artist in a lot of different mediums. I think you'll find it really interesting. If you'd like to check out her work, please go to her website, which is heather-gordon.com. If you'd like to find out more, please go to our website, which is don'tyoulietome.com, and you can find links to the guests we have, images of their artwork, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. If you are interested in sponsoring Don't You Lie to Me, you can email us at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C at gmail.com. So we're here with Heather Gordon, an amazing artist. Uh, I think of her sort of initially as a painter, but I know she does a lot of different things and we are going to talk about those things and we're also going to find out a little bit more about her and what projects she's up to uh so welcome heather gordon hi jeff how are you doing i'm doing pretty well all right so i guess what i'm always interested in how people get into visual arts just the sort of Mm -hmm. how you got to where you are now um and i'm always sort of interested in particular your work i I don't want to say it's non representational because in my mind it is it represents these things it's abstract yeah, it's or, representational art right i mean how do you how do you talk about your work i mean would, would you even just how would you even describe that if you had to put it in a, um, a well category if i'm using data which is facts right and i'm putting them in relationship putting those pieces of data in relationship to each other in a visual way it's essentially like writing a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter or making a song or, I mean, those things, we think of those things as abstract or realist and representational, but right. in different ways. So it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a construct that we have when we apply it to visual arts. What does representational mean? Um, right. Well, if it's all fact-driven and driven by an algorithm... Isn't that not representational in the most bare bones, basic, purest sense? I mean, to me it is. I can't think of any way. I think so, too. And and that's what I was sort of getting at. I mean, when you you first look at at, uh, your work, it looks sort of geometric or or, um, shapes and linear. And I think historically we see those things and we, we, uh, or I think it's very easy to think of them as uh, living out there somewhere that they're not based on uh these things when we know that they are and i think in your work um that you become aware and and knowing where those forms and shapes and and the constructs as you said where they come from is really based on these very real things um but did your work start out like that? How did you get to no my god no right i mean i can't i that that's i started at the at the what representational is to most people. Right. That's right. where I started. Right. Going to the National Gallery with my parents and uh, really uh, taking these 
excursions into a closet that my father had in the basement? Or was it in a side part of the house? I mean, it changed because we moved so much. Which closet he put his paint box in and uh, a few canvases that he'd worked on. Oh, so your dad made artwork. Yeah, but I never actually saw him doing it. He did it before I came around. But then he never got rid of the stuff. He didn't get rid of the gear. Wow. Um, kind of like, you know, a lot of people do that when kids, kids come around. You know, right. they put away their paints or they quit writing or they stop playing guitar. But they don't get rid of the stuff. Right. Yeah. So you anyway, were... so I used, to, I used to steal into the closet to smell the box and open it up. Mm-hmm. And then um, I remember being amazed by uh, these Franz Hall's paintings and uh, the lushness of the paint and thinking about how my father had done it on his canvases because you could see that he was learning and that this was a, there, was a, there was a discernible difference between the way these two men painted. Right. But I loved the paintings equally, so I was mesmerized by that early on. And then a friend of mine got into it after school, and so I just went along you know, like going to drawing class. I think I was eight, and then I just never stopped. That's pretty, pretty early, eight. Yeah. I think. I mean, yeah. to I, I I guess everyone draws, you know, as a kid. I mean, you're sort of required to, but to, to, to really be thinking later. about it. Maybe it was later. I get kind of mushy about the early years. It was early, though. God, yeah. I can't remember when. So. so so when you get to, like, high school and you go to college, oh, yeah. what, you're, you're focusing on art. Is that correct? Uh, oh, no. No? No, I'm not actually aware that uh, I'm any different from anybody else in that sense. Right. Like, I just figure everybody's into it. Right. And where did you grow up? <laughs> um, all over, because I was on a military base a lot of my life. And then we moved every four years, mm-hmm. uh, except for my father did get stationed twice at the Pentagon, back to back, which was great until we moved my senior year of high school. That was not so great. Yeah, that's but, not cool. Yeah, it's a long time though in D.C., which is nice. Right. I was born in Germany. And lived in lots of places. So Alaska, up in Fairbanks. I went up there for the summer and worked when my parents were stationed there. And um, Salt Lake City, outside of that, Ogden, Utah. And Panama City, Florida. Oh, God, there's a lot. Uh, Dayton, Ohio. That's that's all over. Yeah, and then I kept doing it myself. I mean, like, I'm a totally nomadic person. Every four years I get the itch. So I left school and went to college when I was 17 and then moved every four years. But I was never aware that I was into art, really. When, and when I mean, did, the, when did that happen? Really, um, I think maybe there's like, that's like peeling an onion. Yeah. Like first there's this awareness that I tended to like this a lot more than other people did. Like some people don't even, they don't even know, they've never even been to a museum, much less even know what, like they're not, just just not into it. Um, so I noticed that difference and I noticed I was doing it in my own spare time, you know, like kids draw and doodle and stuff. I would like pull out National Geographic books that my grandparents had given me for Christmas and try to make drawings of the pictures of people from different places in the world. And I was fascinated by that and just draw with a pencil, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to make it look exactly the same as I'm seeing it. Right. Being very representational about things. Sure. And so the... Then what? What is the next phase? What? Where does it go from there? When does it become like something you're really 
you're doing? You're doing on a... Uh, I, I had a total existential crisis. The first of many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I changed my major. I went... My undergraduate years, I had five years because I changed from um, pharmaceutical research, which is where what I was interested in and going in that direction for sure, changed it into uh, architecture quite briefly and then into fine arts. Mm-hmm. And that was, I remember having a panic attack about it at three o'clock in the morning. I think it was like that. And I called my, I called home. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I have to be an artist. I'm sorry. I'm going to be poor. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And how did they respond? They started laughing. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, God, it's about time. That's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, ended up going to school for art. And I was, my parents are so practical that, uh, but they, they were totally supportive. I was always shocked by it. I mean, I think they, they knew for a fact I'd never get a job. But they were like super supportive, and it's always amazing when that happens. What that can do for you, yeah. Um, so then you were. I mean, all if I had thought about the fact that my dad was still keeping his painting supplies, right, all those years, I would have. But as a kid, you know, that didn't even occur to me mm-hmm. that he still had such a love for something like that. Right, that's cool. Yeah. So then you're you're in school. You're making art. What does that look like? What what kind of art are you doing? Paintings? Oh, or? Well, it's undergraduate, so yeah. I'm doing whatever they tell me to Color do. Color studies. Pretty much. Oh yeah. my god. Oh my god. Yes. My uh, my undergraduate. Oh my god. Yes. We diagrammed paintings like crazy. Mm-hmm. We would look at different masters, and he would have us do these diagrammatic studies of them, studies of the light, studies of the color, studies of you know, uh, or paint this thing, but make it like eight inches square and use an entire tube of white paint, which made really thick paintings, but you could also scrape it off. Right. But you had to put it on. <laughs> so he was always coming up with stuff like that to kind of break your ideas about setting up a space or what color looked like or how hard was it to make those awesome paintings that you see in the museums. And and when you get done with school, do you feel like you have a sense of what you're doing or are you still no, not just, at all. You just have a foundation some level of understanding maybe about the materials? Um, I think my last semester, I had a, a small series of paintings that I did that I had a sense that they were different. I remember feeling when I made them that these were really different. Is, is that? But a- I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I didn't know if that meant they were good. Or it, if this is really terrible and I shouldn't do it. I mean, I immediately wanted to put judgment on it, right? Is is that, this <laughs> feeling you got, is that an afterward, like, self-critiquing? Or is that in the making? Are you sensing that? In the, yeah, in the making of it. Yeah. You feel it. You just, it just felt different mm-hmm. in my body, making those paintings. Right. There was just a few of them. And uh, I remember uh, also having this repeated dream at that time about this landscape Kind of like a like the close encounters when the guy gets totally fixated on the shape of the mountain. Right. Yeah, that was happening to me. Oh man! About this small ridge of paintings, this small I mean, small ridge of of tiny mountains. I mean, not really hills because they were pointy and rocky. I didn't know where they were, but I kept seeing them in three dimensions. But of course, you know, I'm a painter, and hadn't occurred to me that I that was my own label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. So I, what I was doing was carving them out of foam. So I was sculpting them and then, and then putting them in these setups with light on them. 
and you know, light, trying to match the light that I kept dreaming Mr. Peter dream of, and then I would paint those scenes in different ways, diagram them out, like going through scraping paint off, really layering them over, making lots and lots and lots and lots of paintings, and that ended up being the work that I applied to grad school with. It was really fresh stuff, really new, hadn't had any really critiques on it or anything, yeah. and um, got right in, but... The interesting part that makes this thing worth telling and listening to is that the very, like right at the end of that last semester when I was about to graduate, this visiting professor came in from New Mexico State University. He was the current department head at the time. And he looked at all the paintings I was making and he said, oh, the Doña Annas, have you been there? And I said, yes, please tell me, where is it? I've been there a thousand times in my head. Where you, is it? But you and he said, it's actually... right outside of Las Cruces. He said, are you looking for a grad school? I'm like, yeah, I am. So I oh, went oh there. Oh, man, that's crazy. Yeah. And, but you'd never been there. No. And it was a really tiny school at the time. Tiny school. I think there were maybe eight or ten of us in the, all of the visual arts for, grad, for graduate school. Wow. It was mostly an agriculture school. You know, I think that's changed now. It's been a good long time. But that was in the early 90s. But there were the Donianas, and I used to go out there and take my, put all my gear in the back of my truck and drive out on this road. There was nothing else out there, and there were the Donianas in the same exact angle that I kept seeing. Oh, man, that's so crazy. So we used to go out there, and I would paint, and then or groups of us would go out and watch um, shooting stars when they would come through because you could really see them and have campfires and cook hot dogs, you so, know, that kind of thing. So. Y- it was meant to be in a way, you think? I mean, do well, you believe in sure such things? Up, well, yeah, I do. I mean, I believe in anything sort of supernatural, but... Uh, you know, there's only one way to guarantee that you will never find magic in your life, and that's to just not believe in it. It's magical, because right. I don't... I can't explain why all those things happened, that confluence happened at that time. Right. But it sure felt right, and the paintings that I made there and the people I met there were really important to the development of my work. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I'm withholding judgment on it, but it sure <laughs> like felt like I got dumped in the right place at the right time. Right. Yeah. So the first work that I became aware of that you make were like the hydrothermographs, the oh, circular God. charts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that's pretty different from visually from a mountain range. Yep. Um, I used to have to replace those in a museum tracking humidity and temperature and uh i never cared much for that job but um (laughs) for doing that uh but when i saw your work i immediately was like oh it's these things so uh but tracking something different can you talk about how you started to make those yes i was given a box of those by a friend of mine name is julia burr she's a sculptor in black mountain and uh, she's a good friend of mine, known her for over 20 years now. And she found these in a secondhand store, thrift store, down in Swannanoa, a little place she likes to just roll into every now and again. You know mm-hmm. how it is, like Granny's Panties is around here. <laughs> oh, I know that place. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know that place. <laughs> and uh, so she gave me these. She said, I don't know what they are, but they look cool as shit. What are they? That, that's actually how, what she would have said. They look cool as shit. <laughs> you had to have them. So I had this box and I just kept them on a shelf for a couple of years. I kept pulling them out and looking at them and I'm like not knowing what to do with them. Mm-hmm. And then I took this, um, and I, all the while I'm making work that's more commensurate with the work I was making in graduate school at that time. 
So not, it doesn't look at all. So that work is happening, and I'm making a lot of it at that time, really yeah. highly productive at it. Yeah. And these damn papers keep calling to me. And um, me not knowing how to answer. And then I took this computer science class. I'd gone back. I was uh, going back for some cherry picking some video graphics courses um, and computer science and math courses. And so I'm writing this assembly language program. And I have to, uh, well, one of the things I would do in uh, lab was use, use characters from books for my variables, to name my variables, because it was fun to do that. So I was naming them according to the characters in Moby Dick. And the the young man next to me didn't know who Ahab was. And I thought that was, um, well, it struck me. And I went home and I was thinking about it later on that night and thinking, God, you know, you can, this is when the whole representational thing happened for me. It's like, you could, like, you can, you could write a program in assembly language and that's representational of something. And you could write what's considered to be the greatest American novel or like one of the best, right? I mean, right. that's what people think about it. I've read it. I think it's pretty awesome myself. Mm -hmm. Chapter on white? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but he totally missed the meaning on that because he didn't really absorb it or read it at any point. And I thought, wow. So you could just put something right out in front of someone that's completely representational, but they're completely illiterate to it as well. They have no way to manage or create meaning from marks that are placed in a readable fashion. So I thought it was kind of just an interesting, funny thing. I thought it was funny. Sure. I thought it was humorous. I thought it was funny art. Yeah. Yeah, it's not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> so so how did you start? How did you start to track that? You said, I, I'm going to track this book. How do you yeah, even start making I, uh, marks? It was somewhat arbitrary. I got my, you know, my top 100 best fictional books of all time, and from the top 100 writers that are living today that were asked that question. I, you know, you can debate all that, but I figured it'd be a good general hit at a good, yeah. So I think I've done about 50 so far. I take the first paragraph. And essentially, and convert the first 550 characters, including the spaces and the punctuation, capitals, lowercase, all that, into um, ASCII values, uh, and which would be this is universally accepted uh, ASCII for uh, computer science. So when you type on your keyboard, it converts it to a, a decimal value that then gets pushed into the system in a binary way. That then it gets processed, mm -hmm. right? Right. So kind of like our own brains looking at letters and deciphering what the meaning and how they work together and somewhat similar. So is that the first time you're you're thinking in that way, in this sort of scientific, broken down way to to represent these values? Yeah. So I when I plot them, I'm plotting them in binary. So I only plot the ones. Hmm. This leaves the zeros empty. And then how do you get from that to like uh, some of the paintings and drawings where you're, um, you're describing other physical details, things like folding that those series with like your heart or, right. or other physical things. What, how does your mind get to that point? What is the transition or is there a different way of thinking or is it just an evolution of a way of thinking? Um, can you describe? Yeah. Um, uh, <clears throat> I always think my work is humorous at that time. 
I was thinking that it was funny. I'd done some other things that I thought were humorous. Of course, very few people ever think that's funny. So uh, I never thought of the work as hard or cold in any way, but I kept getting that response from people. And I think part of um, my purpose for making things, part of it, is uh, that they resonate with other people. Somehow they get this good feeling that I get when I make them. Some Something like that or right. some kind of good feeling. I like a good feeling. <laughs> you know? I, I, do I like to be the bringer of a good feeling if sure. I can do that. So uh, I thought, well, I'm missing the story. Like, this, why do I make this? Why do I think this is so interesting? Why is, what is the big deal about data tell, telling a story? And what narrative am I trying to get people to feel when they experience my work and not have to talk to them about it. And how would, how would that look? And can geometry do that? Because that seems hard. Like that seems challenging. That does seem challenging. You know, so I kind of posed that question in my head and then um, was very frustrated with not finding any answers to that, you know, running thought experiments all the time and failing. And then ran across um, a lot of different things. Again, I had a confluence. So I, um, I was interested in the story of a man named Daniel Treffert that was a, uh, he developed a lightning fast calculation after having a, a head injury. I think that's his name, Daniel Treffert, is that right? We can always data check that. Yeah, we're, we're going to check that. Oh one. yeah, you better check it. Okay. Uh, at any rate, so he could explain how he did this lightning calculation. So he sees it as shapes and color. So a digit one would have a shape. He wouldn't see it like we would, you know, like a number. Uh, and then another number, like maybe 20, would have a different shape and a color completely different. And he would just, if you did an operation between those two, you would, he would see a different shape. They would merge together, and he would know what the value of that new shape and color is. And I thought, okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. So a, a shape and color can indicate to some people there is this awareness in some people, this capability to sense meaning in just a shape. So that's representational. That's not abstract. Right. So I'm thinking about that. And then I ran across this documentary that's on Netflix. I think a thousand people, tons of people have seen this thing. Uh, that's about origami. And there was a brief clip in there about Eric Domain at MIT and uh, talking about his theories of uh, geometric folding algorithms and I became really fascinated with that looked him up watched his classes online because they're freely available you know got the textbook read the textbook you know got into it <laughs> and so what's the what's the first thing you, you I then started thinking well and then you know what I didn't take it all the way because then so that's the mechanics mm -hmm. right and so I've got these two things like one a shape can hold a meaning because this guy's already attempted, he's seeing values, assigned values and shapes. So that's possible. And then this other guy is giving us ways to, he, he was also helpful, different ways of thinking about how a shape can be constructed. For, for me, in my mind, it's totally whole new ideas. But then he worked with an origami artist to create this freely available program called TreeMaker, which then I used to create, used data to tell a story and then plug that into the program that he's made that then creates, helps me create the shapes that you see in the work. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I think people feel the stories. I know. I think that's true. I, I, I mean, obviously it's not a, a, something that can be verbally um, 
addressed. I don't, or I can't do it at least. But when I see the work, you know, it, it is, um, it's linear or geometric, however you want to describe it. But there, there, you do get a sense of that. You get somehow that comes through, uh, that it's based on these very human things that it, it reads through, uh, as you said, these other, uh, scientists really have, or mathematicians have, discuss that and you're now filtering in through this artistic medium uh these very real uh day-to-day -day things so tell me one thing that you've plotted like that just so people kind of understand um what's maybe the first thing right. you tracked in um, that way the first thing i did was how to fill my home which was just a list of every place i'd ever lived and and i defined that by a place i received mail at <laughs> so there were 13 places and so I just used those, I brought those up and uh, plotted them in a Google map and then looked for crow flies distances in between each one of those using Durham as an index from which all the other points were, because that's my current living location. Mm -hmm. So I used that to uh, just measure the crow flies distances to all the other places and on then... my map. And then took those numeric values, which are in miles... And then entered those into the program so that when I was defining the tree, the base for my origami design, that it's um, that it, they're all in relationship to each other numerically, given this distance from the current index, which is where I live now. What materials are you using? Oh, it was all digital right then. So right. I was just doing it in a. I was just doing it in the program, and it would give me the diagram, which would then give me the um, the mountain folds and the valley folds. So then that's a purely foldable thing then. Right. And I can pretty much do lots of different things. So what did I do first? I made a painting using house paint from my parents' home renovation. They were doing one. It took them like two years. So I got a whole cache of used paint from them and started making the first How to Fold My Home painting mm -hmm. using old residential paint and then supplemented that by getting other things from scrap exchange or other friends, whatever. Right. And I love that on the top of the cans, it'd say something like bathroom or, you know, kitchen yellow. So that's important. Really love that. that. That's important that it, the materials themselves are relational to this thing you're depicting, right? Oh yeah. Because it was all about home. Right. All the places I'd lived it made sense to do it out of residential paint. Sure. Specific to my family and to myself, you right. know? Yeah. So I maintained that for a good long time, just right. working that way, using that, using that awareness of the materials and then just re-indexing my maps and bringing other people into it and looking at where um, I would say my critical family and friend members live and where they were born and those sorts of things. And so this can be, obviously, can, can look a lot of different ways. This can be sure. a pencil or pen, or this can be paint, or this could be a physical thing. You can actually fold something. It can be this object that sits there, but yeah. it's in the end um, made up of these personal relationships. It's, it, right. it's about you or an experience or, or something like that, which I find really super fascinating. So when do, when do you get to the point, like, you're a, you're an extraordinary artist. You recently won the North Carolina Fellowship. Um, you're recognized by the state as an amazing artist. Uh, and part of that process, you started, or at least around that time, I think, you started doing these taped works. Yes. And and that is, is sort of born out of the similar sort of thinking, you know, 
breaking down these points to points, these folds, uh, but it's a different way of depicting them. And yes. and how did how did you get to that point? Where did that start? For me, it was um, what's that expression? Necessity is a mother of invention. Mm-hmm. So I had it in mind. I wanted to do a wall drawing, and uh, for my show at the Carac, which was in 2015, correct? I think I that's think right. That's right. And um, well, you had to put the show up in a day, right? So. Um, I had to figure out a way to cover uh, 23, I think it was 23 feet, no, 27 feet wide by 11 and a half feet tall. It was big. In short time, you yeah. know, and make it so that I could take it down later on with minimal, like, I don't want it to, like, if I directly drew on the wall, that would be a total mess. I thought about painting the floor, again, total mess. But tape made a lot of sense because it was inexpensive. Uh, it was forgiving. I could get other people to help me. It had patterns and relationships that were consistent with the work and um, helped me activate the space and use it as a stage for performance. So that got coupled with a painting, uh, with a drawing done in tape as well on the floor that paired with with that one to create a stage. So, and is that the first yeah. time you had dance? Uh, yeah. Like sort of, I don't want to say corresponds because it's really all part of one work I, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you work with Justin on that. Yeah. Um, Justin Tornell. And how did and company, how did y'all form that relationship? How did you get to the point where um, you both sort of saw this as a real thing that could work, that you could work. Uh, essentially, dancers are working in not necessarily response, but in connection with your your work. So I don't even know how to formulate this, but how do you get to that point where you guys are having those discussions like, this makes a lot of sense? Well, it was suggested to both of us that by Laura Ritchie that we would work well together. And that we had similar interests. So I emailed Justin and we met, I think, the next day. And um, I took um, a set of index cards that I typed the game results from, like the scoring that you would do from a game of Perquacky, which is a dice game, played, but it has words, uh, letters on it mm-hmm. that you form words with. And there's this elaborate scoring system for numbers of words and numbers of letters of words and you know, right. so you end up with these lovely, uh, these lovely transcripts of the game that include lots of numbers and stacks of numbers being added and subtracted for penalty because you become vulnerable at some point and you can lose points if you don't make points. I love that; it's so much like life. <laughs> and uh, and the uh, and then the, all the word lists, so you'd have just lists of three-letter words, four-letter words, five-letter words, and they just felt so conceptually linked. And I've played this game forever with my, my mother. She, she cannot be beat. The woman cannot be beat. <laughs> She's and, a champion. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Don't play perquacky with her. No way. No way, man. <laughs> so I t- I'd made, I just typed it up on um, each player. I just typed up uh, onto these, their word lists, onto index cards with then these numeric values that just got kind of stuck in between and that was their score but when you hand that to somebody they don't know what that is to them they just see it as some sort of conceptually linked group of words with numbers following them and Justin took one look at it and she's like oh my god and she's 
flipping through it. She's like, oh, my God. I said, so can do you find this interesting? She's like, yes, entirely. And she laid them all out on the table, and was we were moving them around, talking about the game, and next thing you know, number 15 was born, mm. which was number five for me, the value of words number five, because the piece I took her was the value of words number four, which was kind of an expression of how people use these specific words, but out of context, they have no meaning, but we think that they do. Like the words on those lists, you would swear that they had meaning and relationship to each other, but they don't. And so often people talk to each other in these very abstract terms, but they think they're being really specific, but they're really not. It's fascinating. Mm. And so then you develop the work for the Carrick. So, right. And, and how, um, you, you obviously, you've got these points you're working off of for the taped work, for the, for the wall, for the floor. Mm hmm how involved are you with her on the dance side of things? Well, so I use the, the maps also uh, have lots of, they're really based on how circles are packed within that space that you've set up on the diagram. That's mm -hmm. essentially it. So all of my diagrams can be converted to arcs. So I see those as pathways, and we talk a great deal about pathways, both, you know, curvilinear and, and straight. And... Um, as a jumping off point for her in developing choreography, a pathway is important to know. Uh, and then there's all sorts of numbers that are involved in my diagrams that she can then interpret for how long to hold a pose. There's something called strain that's in mine, in my diagrams, that's a plus or minus 15 percentage. Mm. So that offers up a way to create variation for duration of a move or some other, some other variation. She's very interested. She comes uh, at this from a lot of interest in John Cage and his work. Mm. So I think this is a somewhat fresh and kind of in that same vein for it's, her. It's interesting. So it, the, the points are, are dictating both. Uh, they can dictate a movement, but they can also dictate time. Yeah. Uh, so you've got a, a lot of different variables. Mm -hmm. um, so the last time I was in your studio, you had these um, drawings you were making. They were very sort of... Um, curvilinear can yeah. you talk and about sparse yeah can you talk mm -hmm. about what those are based on what that's about yeah that is uh what you were seeing was the very first drawing from a series called 32 algorithms for intimacy so these are descriptions of taking using personal history um dates uh time durations um locations different things from my own memory banks or pieces of paper from events that are important to me and other people in my life, kind of looking at those sorts of interactions in, uh, in relationship to natural, natural forces. So um, <clears throat> the first one, which you saw, was called The Perfect Mirror, and it's about how two people can reflect back to each other at a perfect angle. And then when you do that, um, that did you know that I think that in an an echo in one of those cases, when it's perfectly in alignment, you only hear one. It doesn't actually keep going back and forth and back and forth. You so just hear one. Wow. So there's, um, there's something interesting about reflection and refraction and how that relates to the way people um, uh, interact with each other and shift, just a slight angular shift within uh, very deep, intimate, personal relationships. I find that really fascinating, especially when you think about doing dance. So 
but I don't know anything about dance. So <laughs> the 32 algorithms are essentially, it's a manuscript collection of different scores. Each one of those drawings is a score that uh, indicates pathway or uh, time duration, uh, the ratio of the stage, and like that. So the first one was set up, a, oh, I think Perfect Mirror is a square. The next one was based on phi. Um, and then there's also direction in there that a composer could use. So my idea for this is that I don't actually make any work. I'm just making um, suggestions for how um, a choreographer and a group of performers and a composer might come together to explore a pers interpersonal relationships, the, the collaboration experience between the two, you know, between the, the choreographer and the composer can be very, I mean, that's also expressed in the, in the fluidity of the work. So, so you, the, like the drawing that I saw, you don't see that as an end. You don't see that as the thing. You see that as a, uh, a script or, or a yeah. device to help others find a, a way to depict this thing. It could be music. It could be dance. It could be really a lot of different things or all the, all of these different things at mm -hmm. once. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just do so many different things. Is it hard to kind of rein in on an idea or is it just, where are you at with that? I mean, it seems like you can map most anything. Anything. Yeah. Um, anything that has a discrete value. Right. Do you just have a notebook full of these things that you want to track? How do you keep track of the things you're going to track? Uh, yeah, I'm not really good at tracking. Right. Uh, <laughs> I write on anything I have. I, you do. I try to make sure I've got sticky notes because I like to just stick things up on the wall and then move them around. So I've got a big grid that I've drawn on my wall. Mm -hmm. And those, that grid has different different ideas or groups of ideas like things that are just single one-off ideas or one idea with several other ideas around it, and that one's developing, so now it mm. gets a space for itself, and then I keep putting sticky notes in that area. Right. Um, I've done voice recordings as well, so I've got about, I don't know, over 100 of those mm -hmm. that I'm going to be looking at for source material for the dance, because I've not really used audio before, but sound is going to become important. So, um, We've talked a lot about art obviously in your art um maybe we could talk about you a little bit more personally um all right as you said you've grown up all over the country when, when did you first move to this area oh i moved to durham about six years ago mm -hmm. that's longer than four and you said that four makes you jumpy are we doing okay yeah okay i did get jumpy are you but why why, why are we not jumpy after four well, it's Durham. Mm -hmm. It's feeling like home. Right. It feels like, um, which is really saying something to me because, uh, to hear me say, because home is always just where, is, is the home that my parents physically live in has always been the way I've conceived of it before. So this is the first time that I really feel a town as my hometown. I really feel close with the people here and, mm -hmm. um, feel um welcome i feel welcome that's good yeah yeah so uh not too far from where we're sitting there's a little boy named henry yeah and um i've heard about him yeah i've i've heard about him too um so that's your son he's three did yes. i make that up he's three how has that sort of impacted your work is it something you can you can trace 
um, having a, a, a child. I mean, I know personally how different my life is. Um, and I can see in my own work how different my work is. Can you talk about how you see things in maybe in a different way or, or maybe these things that you track are different now from what they used to be? Well, the, the whole time where I was coming up with the sense of importance of narrative was at the time when Henry was coming into the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought a lot about what my own narrative was because that was going to be the story I was going to be telling him. And, uh, you know, I wanted to think about that. So I think because I was thinking about that so much at the time and, and giving so much more importance to that, it, it did change um, the nature of my work from just mapping things into binary, which is what I'd been doing in those just kind of tongue-in-cheek works, to this full-on exploration of trying to contain one bit of the story in a shape. That became really important at that time. And my map indeed did, did change because now, well... Right. He's a data point. Right. right. <laughs> but but yeah. I, I think also what you're saying is that they've become sort of more personal, right? Yeah. You, you describe it as this value of this thing relational to you. I mean, if you, if you think about it, if you look at it as a whole, if you look at all of these things together or, or in their own way, it's you're, you're creating an autobiography in a way, right? I mean, yeah, over time, yeah, right. the maps do change. Because it wasn't just like I entered him into my map and then just drew another line. Because he went in numerically in relationship to all the other numbers that were in there. So it everything shifted when the math was redone for that map. It's not like an it's not just like an additional leg on a shape that's maintained. It's changing all it's the exactly things around. It's exactly like them. what it is to have a child inserted into your life. Right. It's not just an additional person sitting at the table and you need to get another chair. <laughs> right. It's not like that. It changes Everything. all the other points around yes. it. Yes, yes. Right. I think that's really beautiful. I think we, um, we think of uh, math and science, or you, you can think of math and science as being these cold things, these um, numbers on a page, but that can be full of meaning too, uh, visually, personally, all those sorts of things. I think that's really... Uh, an amazing way to look at the world and to um, they're, they're like facts and or they are facts, but they're, there's something else too. They're an emotion. Uh, there's, there's life in them, uh, which I think is just incredible. Thanks Jeff. So um, you asked me before off air about your identity. How do you self identify? Oh, all right. So let me, let me explain because okay. that um, identity was has been a huge topic since my son was conceived and we decided oh let's have this baby and you know we're two women so right. you have to actually plan it out pretty pretty intently mm-hmm. which we did and um like well who is he going to be and then of course then I had to ask myself well who am I I'm like I don't know like I'm a southerner but I didn't really realize that even though are you kidding? I mean, right. geez, Louise. I'm also queer in the South. Uh, I make art, which is odd as well to most people. Like all of those things, and now I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. And I'm a daughter. And there's something about discovering myself as so intently linked 
intentionally linked to other people and now to place in a way that was somehow freeing and open, opening at the same time because the more I embrace myself, the more I embrace my community that I collaborate with, my friends and my family, and uh, discover more of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more specific to myself, more defined as myself. The more I know about other people and bring them into my life and feel safe in doing that, like in Durham, mm-hmm. which was just kind of... I was just following Anna because she was coming to school right? and found this amazing place. So, um, And it just opened up my work in a way that then allowed me to tell that story about identity and how that can shift and how that can... Uh, it's not a static thing. Right. And I had always thought that it was. Yeah, make a decision about who you are, what you want. Mm-hmm. Make up your mind. Well, no, don't make up your mind. Just be... Just be whatever you are. Don't like decide what you're going to be. I spent a lot of time deciding what I was gonna be when I grew up. Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm gonna be next. Right. Instead of just being being all the wonderful different things that I am. Right. Already. You're pretty. Wonderful. You just kind of come pre-packed with that. I mean, everybody comes pre-packed with it. Right. So. So. Uh, and and this is going to sound incredibly naive, but when when I see your work, I don't initially think of them as gender related. I see them as very universal. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that good? Um, I don't know. I, yeah. mean, I don't really. I'm not. I don't know. I'm not really politically driven in that way. I kind of mm. think of that as politics. Uh, right. And um, not not that I don't enjoy the topic of discussion. Or the arguments therein, but uh, it feels like a lot of labels for me, and it gets very complicated in language. Sure. And I think sometimes language can, uh, for me, kind of tends to lock in meaning and for me about a thing, and then I don't ever really go back and address it. Mm. And uh, I like to think of identity as not having borders, like in between them. I just like to slip and slide all over them in this lovely grayscale, rather than having it exist in binaries. Right. Or groups of binaries that you kind of snap and together like it's some intricate Lego system. It just doesn't work for me. I can't. Mm-hmm. It's you know, I don't know. Right. What's down the road? Have you got? In August, on my birthday, is the first day of installing the work at Waterworks Museum in Salisbury, North Carolina. And um, well, we we will be doing the dance uh, Echo, which is based on reflection and refraction, like we had talked earlier about in the mm-hmm. show. Uh, and that room I envision will be, uh, it's a large room um, that I really want to put mirrors in and then do tape on top of that. You're and into the mirrors lately. Yeah, really interested in that. Right. Yeah. I think that's cool. Yeah. And then uh, after that, there's uh, be doing an installation site-specific piece at the Ackland in um october very cool yeah and have you figured out what that's going to be yet or are you still kind of well it's an unfancy new uh space they're re um reinvigorating one space uh, take it away from being a standard gallery and turning it into a community space where you can come and study and hang out and relax uh so there's a projection system in there and a sound system Mm. 
So they've invited me to tape one wall and put a tape pattern on it, but uh, I'm going to try to uh, see if we can not have a maybe a performance and some projection in there because I'm really interested in how projection could be part of the work. Very nice. Yeah. So in addition to the these uh, sort of traditional in-gallery experiences, you also have work out in the community in non-traditional uh, places now. Uh, Coco Cinnamon, the new Coco Cinnamon, yes. you've done this extraordinary uh, work uh, along the top of a the sort of bar area. And then you've also done taped a van for um, Contact. Oh, yes. um, tell me about that. Do you think of them as different from your uh, sort of a traditional painting in a gallery or, or oh what, yeah they're what is, totally different they're way fun they, they look like <laughs> a lot really of fun, fun projects but it's amazing to think about the number of people that might not wander into a gallery or a museum that are experiencing your work in this other different way yes. right to have your work out there just living in the world is just i think an amazing thing yeah i agree so can you talk a little bit about how you think about those projects? Do you think of them any different from your other work or? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. They're driven very much by the story of the company mm -hmm. uh, and also the company they keep. So uh, like when you talk about Coco Cinnamon, that is, that just redefines collaboration. Mm -hmm. There's so many artists involved. Um, there's David Solo, there's Arelli and Leon, the owners of Coco Cinnamon. And um, it's just a, a very amazing experience to be involved with them because they're telling an overall story. Um, and you're a part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a chapter. Uh, and you get to know what the entirety of their narrative is as a company and their vision for themselves as members of the community. Mm -hmm. And also just personally, that they're fulfilling their own purpose in life and it's it feels really good to be in those in the company of those people and then have your work pushed in that direction so for that uh for the latest mural there i did an oil painting with with color pencil which is something i really have never done before but the work just kept getting driven in that direction in order to get the kinds of marks and the kinds of um, the kind of feeling, the kind of emotion that, um, well, the resonance that David wanted for his vision of how that piece should function with all the other pieces in the store. So that's a really unusual experience, and I don't know that I've ever had that in any other project. And with the contact van, um, Frank has been really helpful, Frank Conhouse. Uh, for many years, he and his wife, Ellen, and big supporters. And he called one day and said, how would you like to tape our van? Well, I said, well, yeah. <laughs> but I, I didn't really ask about the van. The van was quite big. And we did a mapping of their company slogan in German. Um, All dead fishes swim with the stream is the company slogan. Is <laughs> mapped that out and got some artist friends together and we went and spent a week taping their van and it drives all over all over the state installing high-end audiovisual systems in in places and right. it's got tape all over it. It's fantastic. So has uh <laughs> do you think like opening yourself up to collaboration working with Justin has mm -hmm. allowed you to explore these opportunities, these other ways of working with someone out of the, a traditional solo aspect. Oh, yeah. Last year, Warren Hicks and I did a collaborative show. I've never, I've never heard of that never guy. Never heard of him? No, I don't know who that is. Yeah. 
and uh, really got to have the opportunity to think about the Durham Art Guild's um, SunTrust Gallery space in uh, in a whole new way for ourselves. You know, we wanted to open it up and really use large swaths of the space and try to connect the different quadrants together. And also was an opportunity for uh, him to do video and do an interview project, which was fantastic and uh, something he'd never done before and something that invigorated our communities, like being able to interview each other was really fun. Right. To know each other. Got to do a tape uh, installation based on his numbers of all the places he, he's lived, all the geographic resonances and all the places I've lived. So I got a whole new map out of that. Mm-hmm. Plus got to do some sculpture that I hadn't done before because we were trying to activate this space in a different way. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that were just blown away by that show, both the work and how you were so aware of the space that y'all did things that no one had seen with that space and really did different things. And, and, um, and really collaboration is a very difficult thing or it can be, but you guys sort of so seamlessly created work together, created separate work, but work separate work that spoke to one another. I just think it was, uh, really genius the way that you guys work together and i think uh uh or i hope that we'll see more of those sorts of things i know man i could never work with him again he's such a pain in the ass yeah he is trouble i love you warren (laughs) (laughs) thank you heather gordon we are excited that you came and spoke with us today and can you tell us your website heather-gordon.com that's the easiest way to find me because if you type in just Heather Gordon, you get another artist in, who's also a visual artist painter in California. I don't give a fuck about different. that, Heather Gordon. Well, Can she, I say that out loud? No, you can't. I, no. She's, I'm sure she's very nice. She's okay, but she's not our Heather Gordon. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Don't You Lie to Me is funded in part by the Visual Art Exchange's Lighter Fluid Award. If you aren't familiar with those fine people, you should check out their website for more information about their exhibitions, artist benefits, and special programming. Their website is visualartexchange.org. We also want to thank, of course, Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods, his equipment, and his patience. The theme song was composed by our own Warren Hicks, and the logo design was by Artsy Martha. Thank you for listening, and please tell your friends to listen as well. Thank you. Thank you.